Welcome to an exciting forum of alternative viewpoints and balanced ideas. This is Good Morning Canada with Nav and Nav. That's Nav C and Nav M. Confused? Don't be, because two halves always become one. Now join us for an energized hour of global viewpoints and shared ideas, only for you. Now, here are your hosts, Nav and Nav. Hello and welcome to Good Morning Canada. I'm your host, Nav M. Welcome to another hour of Alternative Views. This show will help you rethink, reshape and reform ongoing narratives. A useful starting point for today's topic, which is on media manipulation, is to cross-reference a previous episode, which aired originally on November the 4th, 2020, and it was entitled Follow the Yellow Journalistic Road. And it gives a a background to many of the techniques used uh, within the the media news network, news journalism, in terms of media bias. And just very briefly, the association to yellow journalism refers to an exaggerated, sensational style of newspaper reporting, which basically emerged at the end of the 19th century, and it was designed to boost circulation wars, generate profits, and pursue a political agenda. And in this particular episode, we focused on media bias and the techniques used, the the precise techniques used to shape the public's view of current events and their general view of society and events around them. So coming back to today's episode, the main focus will be on how the media is manipulated and controlled by governments and corporations. And firstly, let's not forget that media manipulation is not a new concept. It's often used by corporations, governments, opposition parties and lobbying groups to further their respective causes. And let's take the the case of war. Governments will often engage uh, a public relations company to discreetly frame the rationale to its domestic population. In the case of questionable war such as Iraq and Afghanistan, PR firms manipulated the media using standard techniques such as spreading disinformation. This is where PR companies release stories to the press without revealing their sources in order to shape wider public opinion. Other tactics include buying editorial space or even paying journalists to publish stories and and push them forward into the newsroom in order to support the war. Indeed, since the early 20th century, many war theatres have employed sophisticated techniques such as propaganda, perception management and so-called psyops or psychological operations. So to this end, the media is an essential conduit of information, which, when used correctly, represents one of the most powerful weapons that a military force has at its disposal. And one of the main objectives in this episode is to explore the use of media manipulation, not only as a weapon of war, but as an indispensable political aid. And throughout this episode, I'll examine the use of media as a tool of propaganda in the aftermath of the events of 9-11 and during the second Gulf War in Iraq. But first, let's begin with a brief introduction. What is propaganda? The term propaganda can be traced back to a committee of church officials called the Congregation for the Propagation of the Faith. And this was established in 1622 under the guidance of Pope Gregory XV as a way of promoting Catholic 
missionary activity and also to combat the Reformation. The word propaganda was later used extensively by Allied forces during both world wars to characterize the enemy's opinion-forming activities with negative connotations by labeling them as lies. And overall, to describe any discourse or message as propaganda is to denigrate it by suggesting that the content of the message is either of limited use, unreliable or suspect, and therefore not of high quality. Moreover, the use of the word suggests that the message referred to is intentionally manipulative and deceptive. But in the modern context, propaganda can be used to persuade the public of the merits of a particular course of action. And this may entail media manipulation by governments to elicit public support for undesirable actions such as war, the highlighting of human rights abuses in the case of interest groups or a corporation promoting a positive public image. So let's now move on to the relationship between propaganda and the mass media. By far the most successful distributor of propaganda is the mass media through newspapers, television, social networking and the power of the internet. Hence mass media clearly has a pervasive influence in contemporary society. And it was Edward Bernays in his 1928 book Propaganda who recognized its role as a modern instrument to elicit productive ends. To quote, help bring order out of chaos by communicating messages and symbols to the wider population. The media's role is to imbue individuals with the patterns of behavior to absorb them into the institutional structures of wider society. And in the past, individuals developed moral values from the teachings and doctrines of the church. But with greater information and the proliferation of information, mass media has the ability to mold an individual's belief and core values. And this is strategically important to the dominant elites who use television networks, radio and print media to maintain their hegemonic position in society. Essentially, propaganda is related to wealth and power because the rigorous methods used by the mass media to generate news content leads to increased market share and audience size. And to influence public opinion, media organizations require precise criteria such as newsworthiness, the type of audience being pitched to, use of language and visual narratives. So let's now turn our attention to the use of propaganda by the U.S. military. The control of information plays a key role in the United States government and its foreign policy. The use of propaganda by the U.S. military is a key element of combat power and an indispensable weapon of modern warfare. Information operations is a vast sphere of influence for the U.S. military, encompassing electronic warfare, computer networks, psychological operations, military deception, and operation security, or the defense of key information systems. Traditional concepts of propaganda involve crafting the message and distributing it via government media or independent news media. However, current conceptions of propaganda go much further than this, and they involve the gathering, processing, and deployment of information by way of complex intelligence and military information systems.
So now that we have some context in place, we can now explore the boundaries between the US government, the use of propaganda and media manipulation. As information gathering and processing becomes more complex, inevitably the boundaries between these three links become much more porous. Indeed, it's fair to say that the media now plays a pivotal role in the governance of nations. The media acts as a liaison between those who govern and those who are governed. In the United States, for instance, the media and government have a symbiotic relationship. Government press officers and their so-called spin doctors have transformed the media into a political institution similar to an interest group. The emphasis on message control reflects the intertwining of journalism with politics and essentially it represents a union of statecraft with stagecraft. And the greatest example of this was in the aftermath of the events of September the 11th, 2001 in the United States. The frenzy and hysteria that followed was indeed intensified by both media and government alike. It was a perfect blend of patriotic messages, existential stakes and fiery speeches by President George W. Bush and others. And it provided the drive and support to launch a global war on terror. As a tool of indoctrination, the media was harnessed and clandestinely directed in terms of its new goal. So, for instance, on the morning of the attacks, President George Bush opened a press conference by saying, quote, the deliberate and deadly attacks which were carried out yesterday against our country were more than acts of terror. They were acts of war, unquote. Terms such as evil and war were repeatedly used until the American psyche was saturated and reconstructed through emotion and nationalism. Overwhelming support for the global war on terror resulted in the 2001 invasion of Afghanistan and the coordination and planning of the invasion of Iraq in 2003. And ever since the events of 9-11, there has been a major shift towards national security, the protection of borders and the dissemination of propaganda. The United States championed this by justifying the war on terror. And this was eagerly accepted by the media, which supported the administration with editorials and articles condemning and attacking the Taliban and Saddam Hussein. Ultimately, this served to incite hatred and calls for retribution from ordinary Americans because the American media had completely captured public attention. So let's now turn our attention to the complicity of American mainstream media. Following the events of 9-11, proclamations were made in all walks of life that nothing would ever be the same again, and somehow the United States had lost its innocence. For the American news media, this meant big changes, because the appeal of mainstream news had been waning for decades. In the week following September the 11th, 9 out of 10 Americans who were surveyed said that the news media's coverage of the attacks had been good or excellent. But let's think about this. If this is true, how did mainstream media in the US become mired in an orgy of patriotic propaganda, using loaded language to promote the war on terrorism while remaining silent on uncomfortable issues and marginalizing any form of dissent? Interestingly, these accusations against mainstream American news are nothing new. In their best-selling book, Manufacturing Consent, Edward Herman and Noam Chomsky 
traced similar biases in the American news media in the 1980s. The authors showed that contrary to common belief, that the news media is stubbornly determined to pursue truth and justice, in reality they defend the economic, social and political agendas of the privileged groups that dominate society, as well as the state and global order. Furthermore, media bias was rampant in the initial hours following the events as television news struggled to remain impartial. Instead, editing was sparse, reflection was absent, and the need for responsible coverage should have been much greater, especially given the fact that 74% of Americans aged between 18 to 54 turned to television as their first source for information after the events. From the outset, seasoned news veterans such as Tom Brokaw of NBC and Dan Rather of CBS were using loaded language in their reports, promoting retaliation as the appropriate response to the attacks. For example, Tom Brokaw stated at the beginning of his nightly newscast at 6.30pm on September the 11th that terrorists have declared war on the United States. Again, Dan Rather in his 6.30pm newscast stated... The nation is stunned but standing and vowing to come back, fight back. Both news anchors also quoted from President Bush's response, selecting phrases that further emphasize retaliation. Brockhaw chose to quote, Freedom has been attacked by a faceless coward. Freedom will be defended. While rather quoted Bush as saying, We will find and punish those responsible for these cowardly events. And if we take a closer look at the first few minutes of Dan Rather's 6.30pm news report from the next day, Wednesday, September the 12th, we can see an intensification of the previous day's biased accounts. Virtually all of his stories emphasised a unanimous call for war. In particular, there was a almost a sense of rallying around the president by using the inflamed rhetoric of his earlier speeches, words such as war, justice and punish. Rather begins by stating it is not a declared war, but a war just the same. Rather continues by saying a White House spokesman said the intended targets included the White House and Air Force One, therefore implying that the attacks were against the president, thereby justifying the use of the term war. Also at this early stage, despite the lack of clarity or hard evidence about the enemy, Remarkably, the evidence was clear that the, the, the enemy had been identified. Indeed, Osama bin Laden is mentioned as the prime suspect four times in Rather's newscast. Essentially, bin Laden had been convicted, fulfilling the need and a very important need to place a face on the enemy. These biases also appeared in the United States mainstream print media in the days following 9-11 as news magazines around the world scrambled to respond to the live events being beamed around the world by TV networks. Although print media was the prime source of news for only 5-7% to 7 of Americans aged 18-54, to 54, they have the advantage of added time before publication. There's always a robust editorial process and a reputation for more in-depth coverage. So in this regard, Time magazine, a major U.S. publication, created a separate, undated issue which was entirely devoted to the events of September the 11th. The first 30 pages were double-page color spreads 
under the headline Day of Infamy and consisted mainly of photographs of the survivors, rescue workers and the wreckage with minimum text along the bottom edge. But on page 34, a 14-page article begins detailing the 9-11 events, again with heavy use of imagery. They also inserted a one-page essay entitled The Case for Rage and Retribution by Lance Morrow, a professor of journalism at Boston University. And this essay clearly lacked journalistic neutrality by promoting violence and its negation of rational thought. It states, quote, A day cannot live in infamy without the nourishment of rage. What's needed is a unified Pearl Harbor, a sort of American fury, a fury that should not look at the reasons why, unquote. One might assume, having read this, that this piece does not represent the view of the magazine. However, a number of factors would suggest otherwise. Morrow was already a regular contributor and editor for Time magazine for almost 30 years. So regardless of intention, this essay is clearly designed to influence the news, the views of the magazine's readers. And this process of mental framing provides a backdrop to our next area of discussion, which is the historical context of the events of 9-11. And evidently, this is a thorny issue for American news networks, given that the US is partly responsible for making bin Laden into a terrorist. More so by considering the billions of US dollars provided to the militias during the Soviet occupation of Afghanistan in the early 80s. In addition, the CIA was funneling money and arms to the Mujahideen and actively recruited around 35,000 Islamic militants from 40 countries and then trained and equipped them for battle in what some commentators have described as the first jihad or holy war. This information represents a less than stellar track record of American policy, which was either glossed over or not mentioned at all in American mainstream media. There was also the uncomfortable fact that many political and ideological groups in the world simply hated the United States. When journalists in mainstream American news asked what the reason was for this, why do bin Laden and his followers hate us so much, the answer provided was the one George Bush repeated in his speeches. It's because of our freedom, our democracy. And this absence or glossing over of American history in American mainstream media was hardly surprising given that America's tarnished past was the polar opposite of what Bush was portraying as good, civilized, just, tolerant and right. All words that President Bush used in his address to Congress on September the 20th. But according to history, America is not so squeaky clean because awkward questions arise such as what is terrorism and has the United States been involved in terrorism themselves? The word terrorism is one of the most overloaded and contested terms in contemporary political vocabulary. But by the late 1960s, the Nixon administration was using the term terrorism to describe a wide range of activities and groups. It established a cabinet committee to combat terrorism in 1972 and subsequent U.S. administrations continued to develop agencies and task forces to fight terrorism by designating labels for groups that the U.S. government was fighting. 
But during this era, the U.S. was widely accused of crimes against civilians in Vietnam and elsewhere. In addition, it used violence to intervene in other countries, politics, which is where the term state terrorism really emerged. Hence, terrorism was a highly constructed issue and often contested, especially when one group's terrorists became another group's freedom fighters. So now that we have the historical background to the 9-11 events, we can now see how the mainstream media towed the official line. George Bush's overly simplistic rhetoric that you are either with us or you are with the terrorists meant that anyone who raised such questions is with the terrorists and therefore became an opponent of progress, tolerance and freedom. So rather than addressing the difficult questions, the mainstream media in the US closed its eyes to all but the official line. And following a loss of approximately $400 million in advertising revenue during the first four days of commercial free news coverage due to the 9-11 events, the television networks were very keen to retain viewers and advertisers at all costs. Therefore, they pulled or killed anything that caused or might cause controversy. In the initial days and weeks following the attacks, this meant patriotic bias was in, was in and thinking was out. The network anchors as well as political commentators framed the event as a military attack, with Peter Jennings of ABC stating, the response is going to have to be massive if it is to be effective. In the years that followed, a growing number of expert consultants were hired by the television corporations to explain complex events to the public. The military consultants hired by the networks had close connections to the Pentagon and would usually express the Pentagon's point of view, especially creating propaganda conduits for the military rather than representing themselves as independent analysts. The lack of debate in the U.S. broadcast media points to an intensifying crisis in the United States. While the media are supposed to discuss issues of public importance and represent a wide range of views about the war on terror, the commentators employed were largely privileged individuals backing the Bush administration and the Pentagon's position. And another problem was that the Democratic Party did not vigorously contest George Bush's position on terrorism and voted overwhelmingly in his favor to take whatever steps he deemed necessary to attack terrorists. This included supporting the USA Patriot Act and backing the war in 2003 against Iraq. The majority of the world and significant sectors within U.S. society, despite being invisible on television, were genuinely opposed to the Bush administration's policy and called for more multilateral approaches to problems like terrorism. So the news networks escalated the level of fear and hysteria by demanding a military response, while the military establishment pushed for intervention with very little reflection of the consequences. So let's now try to interpret the various issues discussed in terms of what this meant for media manipulation. Regardless of whether the news media's bias stemmed from patriotism or sensitivity to their audiences or financial backers, 
or perhaps the result of suggestions from the government, the end result was the same. American mainstream had degenerated almost completely into blatant propaganda. Not only did it use loaded terminology to promote the war on terrorism and remain silent on uncomfortable issues, it also actively marginalized dissenting opinion. And before proceeding to the next area of discussion, let's pause and reflect on some of the important questions raised. Did the American news media become more controlled after 9-11? In, in some respects, we can say yes, but also no. They turned from minor feature stories to hard news, but their use of loaded language clearly sensationalized those news reports. Secondly, did they become more responsible? Certainly not. The American news media's coverage immediately following 9-11 bordered on irresponsible. And it promoted a military response to the attacks, excluding stories that expressed alternative views. And it glossed over and ignored uncomfortable historical information. Additionally, the blatant show of patriotism through the wearing of American flag pins and publicly declaring their bias in interviews is not a responsible form of behavior from highly trained journalists whose job it was to report the news objectively, especially at national level. Thirdly, did the American news media become more international? The answer is yes, if international means covering stories about other countries, but there was a steady uptick in stories about Afghanistan, for example. So while mainstream media news did change quite radically in the initial days and weeks following September the 11th. In the months that followed, it slowly returned to its familiar pattern of domestic focus and inconsequential stories. And despite the claims that nothing would ever be the same, the reality is that nothing much has changed in the mainstream American news from the pre-9-11 coverage. The reasons for this are quite complex and well beyond the scope of this episode, but a major reason is the techniques employed by news networks to retain audiences. These include lurid headlines, sensationalism, and a grotesque over-reliance on crime and its effects. For instance, it's a well-documented fact that mass media plays a key role in the construction and proliferation of the perceptions of crime through graphic visual imagery, particularly via the broadcast news networks. Research demonstrates the effect of media consumption on public attitudes in relation to crime and justice. However, this issue of sensationalism, i.e. a morbid focus on crime and road traffic accidents, which is pursued aggressively by major news networks, raises a key point. Essentially, it explains why there is a lack of critical depth on mainstream media, or indeed why alternative views are rarely aired, unless there are reason to ridicule them. And this is something I'll now explore in the second half of the episode. And to do so, I will need to take a leaf out of the archives of Western philosophy by introducing a concept called the Hegelian dialectic. So at the moment, we're just coming up to a short break. There'll be much more to come in the next segment. We'll see you very shortly. Thanks very much.
Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. Today, many doctors prescribe basic pharmaceuticals to their patients who aren't feeling well or have various aches or pains. Is this the right course of action for all patients? Definitely not. Find out about healthy, natural ways to help you feel your best by tuning in to the CBD Ed Show with host Edward Cheney. Ed will explain full-spectrum CBD, where the whole hemp plant can be used for treatment, and answer all of your questions about CBD and natural treatment in general. Listen Fridays at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Variety. Want an insider's pass to everything that goes on in Hollywood? Join Summer Helene every week for Behind the Scenes. Summer Helene is known as the Duchess of Hollywood because she knows the insiders, legends, and celebs and brings the stories, the gossip, and the backstage scoop. It's the real Hollywood, though. So this program is for adults only. Behind the Scenes can be heard live every Friday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time and 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. You are listening to Good Morning Canada with Nav and Nav. To find out more about us and the ideas behind our show, visit our website at gmc-radio.com. That's gmc-radio.com. Now, back to Good Morning Canada. Welcome back. You're listening to Good Morning Canada with your host, Nav M. It's great to have your company. So in the previous section, I just finished talking about why there is a lack of alternative views in the American <clears throat> broadcast media. And I'd like to explore this much further by approaching Western philosophy, by introducing a concept called the Hegelian dialectic. Now, a dialectic is essentially a method of argument or reasoning which is rooted in the practice of dialogue between two people. And each of those people will hold different viewpoints, but they both wish to establish the truth through reasoned argument. And it's often viewed as an alternative approach to science, which as a discipline relies purely on reproducing and independently verifying data. For instance, we all know that the planet Earth revolves around the sun, but it's difficult to establish and verify this as a fact. Yet both dialectic and scientific methods seek the truth of the matter and both still hold validity, provided they cannot be disproven. And although the scientific method of fact-finding is backed by empirical data, it cannot explain all occurrences in everyday reality. Hence, the Hegelian dialectic is presented as an alternative method to make sense of things. So let's briefly look at the origins of the Hegelian dialectic. It's based on the German philosopher George Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel, who lived between 1770 and 1831. He belonged to the period of philosophy known as German idealism. Hegel was interested in various facets of knowledge, such as logical, natural, human, and model or tripartite scheme. 
And the relevance to today's episode is that the model provides an insight into various external forces which control our lives, such as corporations and governments. For example, where do our lives fit into the world around us and the events which impact us? Hegel's dialectic consists of three stages of development. It involves an interchange from thesis to antithesis, or also pronounced as antithesis. And then it reverts back to synthesis. And we should point out at this stage that Hegel did not use these terms himself. So let's look at these three areas. A thesis gives rise to a reaction. An antithesis then contradicts or negates the thesis. And the ensuing tension which arises between the two is resolved by the means of synthesis. It's also important to note that this is a very simplified view of a highly complex set of ideas. And what makes dialectical thinking so difficult to explain is the fact that it's generally understood in practice. It's not a method or a set of principles which can be simply stated and then applied to the subject matter at hand. So let's look at how the Hegelian dialectic works. The essence of the dialectic centers on Hegel's philosophy belief in totality. So whenever problems arise in our lives and the world around us, they represent developmental stages which are partial because of their transient nature. The stages represent opposing forces which eventually need to be overcome. They are then followed up by reactions which evolve and become part of totality. However, because we are dealing with opposing forces of a transient nature, the resolution can have both positive and negative effects. So let's explain this further. We, we, we can now review some real-life examples. In the 1920s, for instance, communism was perceived as a threat to Western democracy and world peace. And here, this is where we identify the problem. So let's look at the reaction. The reaction was to combat communism by applying an equal and opposite force, whether this was through military aggression or a policy of detente. Examples of opposite examples include World War II, the Korean War, the Vietnam War, the Cold War, and the, and the use of proxy governments. Let's now look at the synthesis or solution. The synthesis was to establish democracy through a capitalist order and to further individual wealth and prosperity. So this reasoning seems to apply to the dialectic because communism is no longer a threat. Hence, through synthesis, we have established a new thesis. And in the contemporary world, thesis includes issues such as terrorism, drugs trafficking, people trafficking, the war on drugs, the war on terror, religious threats public health threats, to name just a few. So if these issues conform to the dialectic, where do they lead us? And what exactly do we learn from it? Also, are there long-term consequences of the synthesis, such as social or economic upheaval, more state control, or perhaps an erosion of civil liberties? But the real key to the dialectic are the opposing forces, which we spoke of, because once they are generated, they trigger real-time reactions, and this is the relevance 
to today's episode. So let's explore this a little bit further. British author and researcher David Icke has written extensively about such manipulation techniques, a phenomenon which he refers to as problem-reaction-solution, or PRS for short. It's also known as order out of chaos. Now, in his model, David Icke addresses one of the key questions which we mentioned earlier. If issues such as the threat of international terrorism conform to the dialectic, where does it lead us? David Icke explains it as follows. First, a problem is constructed by the authorities with the clear objective to elicit a certain reaction out of the general population, which is usually fear, panic, chaos, rage or trauma. The mass media is then directed to perpetually focus its resources on this one problem. However, the mainstream media will only broadcast or print a one-sided argument. In other words, only the side the authorities want to project. This problem could be a war, social or economic upheaval, a financial crisis, corporate tax cuts, welfare changes, budget cuts or a string of terrorist attacks. The power of mass media then elevates the problem to disproportionate levels through shock and fear tactics. The media's role here is very specific, to enrage, aggravate people, to induce fear and create widespread disorder. Once the false perceptions have been firmly embedded within society, the next phase is to apportion blame on an individual group or an entity or a conspicuous element of society. And we know that mass psychology dictates that the general population, through fear and outrage, will demand a solution to this problem. In other words, something must be done immediately to address and fix this problem. And the next stage is the individuals that initially created the problem come back to the helpless, vulnerable population and manufacture a solution. The solution to the problem will always involve further curtailment of freedom and or the acceptance of new regulations or new laws in order to support a new worldview. The authorities will respond by issuing statements which are designed to protect the population's safety. And the message and vocabulary used will be something on the lines of, it's for your safety and your family's safety. We can only protect you and guarantee your safety if all citizens agree to give up their rights. Consequently, the general population willingly accept the pre-planned solution because of the shock phase involved by going from thesis to antithesis. And the shock is the impetus which requires the willing acceptance of the solution. And that's because it always involves actions or legislation that would never have passed under normal circumstances. So David Icke describes problem-reaction-solution as a mass mind-control system used to make changes to the law that citizens would never have accepted under normal circumstances. And to explore this theory in greater detail, let's look at some real-life examples of PRS. In the aftermath of the 9-11 events, President George Bush said that when questioned about the possible U.S. reaction... Quote, you are either with us or you are with the terrorist, end quote. So when we look at this, events of this magnitude will eventually invite various explanations which will hopefully shed light on the 
events. Generally, individuals fall into one of two camps. The first group believe that the 9-11 events were a series of pre-planned attacks by international terrorists led by Osama bin Laden. The second group believes it was an inside job orchestrated by the upper echelons of the U.S. government. In other words, a cover story used as a precursor for regime change in the Middle East. In reality, whichever view one takes is is irrelevant because the end result is well documented. We know that the 9-11 events were clearly used by the U.S. government to justify the war on terror and subsequently wage war on, on Afghanistan and Iraq, as well as other Middle Eastern states, but also to convince the American people to give up their rights and freedoms in exchange for their proposed safety. Let's explore this by analyzing it from the PRS model. First, the problem. The 9-11 events were projected not only as an attack on the United States, but an attack on world democracy and freedom. The specter of terror is employed with dramatic effect to grab attention. The main objective is to catalyze this series of unanticipated events and spread fear, panic and terror through the global population. The ensuing chaos exploited the novelty of the 9-11 events due to a combination of factors. Firstly, airplane hijacking and crashing airplanes into buildings. Secondly, the destabilization of urban and economic life and hitting symbolic targets such as global capital and American military power. But there were also tangible effects too. A disruption of the airline industry closing businesses down in downtown New York and also the global economy itself through the closure of the US and other stock markets which led to a subsequent downturn in world markets. The 9-11 events were played out in a manner reminiscent of a deadly drama on live television. The images of the planes striking the World Trade Center, the buildings bursting into flames, individuals jumping out of windows in a desperate attempt to survive the raging inferno graphic collapse of the towers and subsequent chaos provided indelible images which reinforced to viewers the imminent sense of doom and destruction. Also, the images were broadcast repeatedly to raise the stakes of a highly traumatic event. The main message being conveyed was that the US was vulnerable to terror attack and that terrorists could harm the US and the global economy. But more importantly, the same repetitive messages were designed to maximize psychological effect and traumatize a nation which was already gripped with fear. So we see that the spectacle of the 9-11 events took over TV programming for the next three days without any commercial breaks as the major television networks focused on the attack and its aftermath, again ratcheting up fear and chaos. Let's now look at this in the PRS model. Secondly, reaction. The, the Bush administration's response was to attack the, quote, evil of the terrorists. The same word being used five times in President Bush's first statement after the events and repeatedly portraying the conflict as a war between good and evil in which the U.S. would eradicate evil from the world to smoke out and pursue evildoers. 
President Bush also used terms of duality, seeing things in black and white in order to construct the evil other which had attacked the U.S., highlighting the goodness of the U.S. against the evil of terrorism. So let's now turn our attention to the solution. The Bush administration used fear tactics from the ensuing panic to advance its political and military agenda, including curtailment of social programs and unprecedented military build-up during peacetime, which had never been seen before, the most draconian assaults on U.S. rights and freedoms in the contemporary era via the USA Patriot Act, and a highly controversial and divisive war on Iraq in March 2003. President Bush declared war on any state supporting terrorism and created essentially a pretext for endless wars by nurturing and legitimizing military interventions for years to come. So when we look at all of this, the PRS model, to the casual observer, the first reaction to the assertion that a methodology could be applied to events of such magnitude would be to simply condemn it as a monstrous lie designed purely to discredit a democratically elected government. But let's look at this closely. To what extent is this true? Can we find other examples in history where the PRS model has been used and applied? Let's explore this by briefly reviewing the scenario of weapons of mass destruction. First, the problem. Less than a year after the 9-11 events, the US and UK governments began ratcheting up the pressure to invade Iraq on the ground that Saddam Hussein was closely connected to Al-Qaeda and his regime possessed weapons of mass destruction. Second, the reaction. When no evidence of planes, missiles or equipment in relation to WMD could be found by UN weapons inspectors, the British Secret Service, MI6, presented a dossier on Iraq's weapons capability program. And although it was later discredited, evidence from key officials proves it was drawn up to make a clear case for war. Third, the solution. When those allegations proved to be false, the US invaded Iraq to apparently spread democracy and liberate the Iraqi people from the dictatorship of Saddam Hussein. Now, there are parallels here with other forms of discourse because these events have similarities to what's referred to as false flag operations. A false flag is an act committed with the intent of disguising the actual source of responsibility and then pinning the blame on another party. Let's review some examples which also come under the description of the PRS model. Nazi Germany and the burning of the German parliament or Reichstag. It was subsequently blamed on the communists and it led to the seizure of power by the National Socialist Party. On the night of February 27th, 1933, after the Reichstag fire, President Hindenburg invoked a special decree which abolished freedom of speech, National Assembly and the press. Secondly, the 1953 Iranian coup d'etat was the consequence of a US and British orchestrated false flag operation which toppled the democratically elected leader, Mohammad Mossadegh. Thirdly, Operation Northwards. And this is a key point here because it bears very, very similar hallmarks compared to the terrorist attacks of 9-11. So, Operation Northwoods was a 1962 plan by the U.S. Department of Defense to stage terrorist acts of terrorism 
in the U.S. and blame it on the Cuban government to generate public support for an invasion of Cuba. The plan included state-sponsored acts of terrorism using hijacking of planes, sinking boats of Cuban refugees, blowing up a U.S. ship in harbor, blowing up drone commercial airlines, committing acts of terrorism in Washington, D.C. and major U.S. cities to justify support of a war in Cuba. It was then signed off by the Joint Chiefs of Staff in 1962, but was rejected by then-President John F. Kennedy. Number four, let's look at the Gulf of Tonkin incident, which led to the Vietnam War. On 4th of August 1964, President Lyndon Johnson interrupted TV broadcast shortly before midnight to announce that two U.S. ships in the Gulf of Tonkin had come under fire in international waters and that in response to an unprovoked attack, an air campaign was duly launched. U.S. forces launched 64 bombing sorties, destroyed an oil depot, and a significant portion of the North Vietnamese Navy. And three days later, both houses of Congress passed a joint resolution authorizing the president as commander-in-chief to take all necessary measures to repel any armed attack against U.S. forces. So next, number five, we can look at the bombing in Oklahoma City on April 19th, 1995. And this is considered to be a... classic false flag operation. A U.S. Army veteran named Timothy McVeigh drove a rider truck packed with explosives into downtown Oklahoma City and destroyed a federal office building, killing 168 people and including 19 of those which were children. Within 90 minutes of the bombing, McVeigh was pulled over near the Kansas border and arrested in a highly improbable getaway car which had no license plates. And as a result of the bombing, the U.S. immediate the U.S. government immediately passed the Anti-Terrorism and Effective Death Penalty Act of 1996, which tightened a citizen's rights to protection against illegal imprisonment. And there are numerous other historical examples of PRS in practice, as well as countless others which have not been recognized. It's one of the most commonly used tactics of subterfuge to bring about massive change to a population through disorientation, fear, panic and chaos. And when viewed in isolation, these acts appear to be nothing more than a brazen display of violence by committed idealists. But... It's the implausible nature of the events which demands closer scrutiny. And when viewed as essential steps in sweeping away the old order and establishing a new world order, a pattern begins to emerge. Also, let's consider that the template of PRS always involves fear, terror, disorder to achieve its objectives. So having reviewed examples of The problem-reaction-solution model, my objective is not to convince or convert any of the listeners, but simply to present an alternative viewpoint via the Hegelian dialectic, which, if we recall from my earlier piece, is essentially a method of reasoning to establish the truth. So the question arises, can the PRS model be applied to current events in relation to COVID-19? and the crisis that we see engulfing us at the moment. I believe so, and I also accept that many detractors will say, for instance, what does the COVID-19 or coronavirus have to do with the PRS model? 
the first point which should be noted is that the PRS model relies on a familiar blueprint or template to be invoked. And we've seen the hallmarks of this in a variety of crises. Firstly, let's look at the relevant parallels which apply. First, the problem. Essentially, what has unfolded in the past four months is an economic collapse on an unprecedented scale. Global economic activity has contracted. Millions of people across the world are either economically inactive or they will be made unemployed without access to any form of earnings. The crisis has led to poverty, despair and human ruin. Second, the reaction. Countries all over the world have reported signs of population anxiety, reduced well-being, depression, suicide, and more recently, especially across Europe, widespread protests and social unrest linked purely to the recurrence of lockdowns and the impending threat of an economic downturn. The general population demands that something should be done to make them feel safe from infection and economic ruin. Third, the solution. Social distancing, stay-at-home orders, lockdown measures and mandatory mask wearing in public areas. All of these have affected vast swathes of people globally through restrictions to prevent freedom to travel, restrictions to prevent freedom of assembly, restrictions on civil liberties. We also see control of the internet. There's heavy subsidization from governments to big pharma companies. And yet, paradoxically, small independent businesses have, have been penalized in favor of the large multinational corporations. And we can even speak of a possible implementation of a universal basic income, which means more control over workers' wages and salaries. So what we've seen is very complex issues being projected or presented in this PRS model. So let's wrap up with some final remarks. Throughout this episode, we've seen various examples of how mainstream media is manipulated by governments. Recent events in relation to the coronavirus have proved that it has become the link between the government and the people it's intended to serve. The manner in which this link is used determines the direction people take in relation to society's issues. We've also seen how the problem-reaction-solution model provides an alternative insight into various national and international crises. And inevitably, there will be many detractors who refute this model as simply incredulous. My own view is that the use of reasoning suggests otherwise. For instance, let's look at the infamous duck test, which is a form of abductive reasoning. The expression is, if it looks like a duck, swims like a duck, and quacks like a duck, it's a duck. The point being, when investigating an unknown or complex subject, it's often instructive to observe notable characteristics. In other words, when something is not what it appears to be, and the historical parallels are too hard to ignore, it deserves closer scrutiny. Presently in Toronto, Canada, authorities inform us that we're in the midst of a third deadly wave of coronavirus. And interestingly, in the aftermath of the 9-11 events, the Bush administration, along with the mass media, ramped up fear and panic during the anthrax attacks of September 18th and the subsequent reports of a new wave of terrorist threats. Consider this headline from the ABC News dated November the 3rd, 2001. Bush calls anthrax a second wave of terror. 
Now, I'm not saying this is proof of anything. It's certainly not. But the parallels of semantics, templates, and outcomes are simply too hard to ignore. And in the final analysis, controlling the spread of the coronavirus is paramount to protecting vulnerable elements of society. And many of the measures implemented seem justified when protecting the elderly, infirm, or immune-deficient members of the population. This in itself wouldn't be a problem if we knew that once the emergency was over, these additional powers would be repealed and our civil liberties restored. But history teaches us that power once obtained is rarely relinquished. And a quote from Shakespeare's play Macbeth, Act 1, Scene 3, specifically I'm referring to the drastic changes throughout society that we've seen. If good, why do I yield to that suggestion whose horrid image doth unfix my hair and make my seated heart knock at my ribs against the use of nature? Present fears are less than horrible imaginings. And that's all we have time for in today's episode. Many thanks for listening to Good Morning Canada. I really appreciated your company today. If you have any comments on any of the issues discussed, you can send feedback by emailing us from our Voice America host site. And a quick note that I will be taking a short break from Good Morning Canada, but the show will return in the fall of 2021. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time, another Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 noon Eastern. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to Good Morning Canada. Please join NAVC and NAVM for another great program next Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time and 12 noon Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll see you soon. 